Today I am speaking with Bart Ehrman. Bart is the author of more than 30 books, including the bestsellers Misquoting Jesus and How Jesus Became God. He's a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a leading authority on the New Testament and the history of early Christianity. He's been featured in Time and The New Yorker and The Washington Post and many other places. He's been on The Daily Show. He's been in many documentaries. And his most recent book is The Triumph of Christianity. And this details the history of how Christianity spread through the world. Bart, as you'll hear, is a former believer. He's now, I think he calls himself an agnostic at this point, though that didn't come up. But we had a great conversation. This was really the full tour of what Christianity is as a belief system and how it got that way. I wanted to come at it as though from Mars and consider the whole doctrine as though I had never heard of it before. We did that, and it was fascinating. We talked about his background as a born-again Christian and then his loss of faith once he became a, a true scholar of the New Testament. I asked him what the most convincing argument in defense of Christianity is. We talked about the status of miracles. We spent some time talking about the, the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus and the nature of heaven and hell. We talked about the end times and biblical prophecy and about who Jesus likely was and who he thought he was. We focus on Paul as the most important apostle, and then discuss how it was that he likely converted so many people to the faith. Anyway, I thought it was a very interesting conversation. Sometimes it's good to examine something that you're familiar with as though you've never seen it before, and that's what we do here. I now bring you Bart Ehrman. I am here with Bart Ehrman. Bart, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you have a fascinating new book, The Triumph of Christianity, How Forbidden Religion Swept the World, which we will definitely talk about, I want to talk about, but it, is, it is, comes on the back of, of many books you've written about Christianity. And you have a, a very interesting story with respect to your own faith and scholarship. So I just want to start there, which is not really the, the subject of your current book. For those listeners who don't know you, take us back to some of the crucial moments in your development as a thinker on this topic. What is your background religiously, and where did you, you wander on the landscape of faith and doubt? Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a bit of an odd duck in the field of uh, New Testament and early Christian studies uh, because I'm a, I'm a scholar of the New Testament. My PhD is in New Testament, but I'm actually uh, not a Christian myself, and there aren't very many non-Christian uh, scholars of the New Testament out there. I was raised Christian, though. Um, I was raised in the, uh, when I was a kid. I was in the Episcopal Church and uh, grew up uh, fairly religious. Uh, when I was in high school, I had a born-again experience, and uh, I committed my life to Christ, and uh, that's how I got really interested in the Bibles, because I was religiously committed. Tell me more about that. What, what is a born-again experience? We're going to talk about Saul and the road to Damascus that made him Paul, but what was your experience? So I, I was a church-going Episcopalian. 
And I started in high school attending a youth group that was uh, not connected with the church, but was a very religious uh, youth group. It was called uh, Campus Life Youth for Christ. And the leader of this group was a 20-something guy who was very charismatic in his personality, who insisted that if you, uh, that the only way to be a real Christian was to ask Jesus into your heart and to commit your life to him as your Lord and Savior. Uh, and so uh, I decided I had to become a Christian. <laughs> it wasn't clear to me what I was before that, uh, because I you know, went to church every week. Uh, but... Um, this was a sort of a personal commitment that somebody would make. And so being born again meant making this commitment. And then you were given a new life. Your old life was over, and now you began your life as a Christian. But was it merely a matter of deciding to do this? Did it entail some experience that, that seemed confirmatory of the belief structure? I mean, was there was some, some evidence that came crashing down subjectively that seemed to verify the the truth of the doctrine? Yeah. So the way it worked and still works in these circles is that it involves uh, saying a prayer and uh, making a personal profession to God of faith in Christ. And the confirmation is in a kind of feeling of elation, where you uh, you have this kind of psychological moment of uh, heightened emotion, and uh, this is uh, that is sort of the beginning confirmation that something's actually happened, and you're a, you're a different person now. And so, uh, as a 15 year old, uh, having only been born 15 years earlier, I was born again. <laughs> hmm. Well, the liability here is at the level of epistemology is is hard to ignore because. What sort of group induction experience as a teenager wouldn't produce a feeling of elation? I mean, you could imagine so many other things being swapped in for Christianity there. Did you worry about this at the time, or was it just was the truth of the beliefs that you were taking on just kind of baked into you based on your background? Yeah, no, I was. I didn't worry about it a bit for many years. Uh, I was convinced that I knew the truth, and that uh, if somebody wanted to have eternal life, they had to also know this truth. And there was one truth, and uh, and it was rooted very much in uh, an understanding of the Bible, that the Bible was the revelation from God. And one had to uh, commit oneself to the truth of the Bible in order uh, both to know God and to have eternal life. And anyone who didn't uh, accept this message was destined to uh, the fires of hell forever. So you would have called yourself an evangelical at that point? Does anyone call themselves a fundamentalist, or is that a word of opprobrium spoken by secularists who, who don't agree with them? Well, not just secularists. Uh, fundamentalism tends to be a, the term to use for uh, the guy who's to the far right of you. <laughs> right, and so right. uh, even in Christian circles, you, you have a lot of Christians who talk about fundamentalists, and they, what they mean by that often is uh, somebody who's uh, sort of rabidly conservative. But I, I'll say, I mean, when I went off to uh, college, I went to a fundamentalist Bible college, and we we were somewhat proud of the term fundamentalist because for us, it meant that we subscribed to the very fundamentals of the faith. Right. And, and there were other Christians who were more liberal in their orientation, who didn't accept even the very fundamentals. And so we considered ourselves 
to be fundamentalists in what we thought was a positive sense that that we held to the the essential elements of the Christian faith. Yeah, I mean, what, wasn't it originally a coinage of of Moody Bible College? Um, no, I'm not sure where it originally started, it, it, but I think it actually started later than Moody started. Moody started in the in the late 19th century, and the the term fundamentalist became a big deal in the ni- 1920s when mm. there was a split in several denominations uh, over um, issues such as, you know, was there a literal virgin birth, uh, or is the Bible inerrant in all of its wording or not, with conservatives saying, yes, it's inerrant, and yes, there was a literal virgin birth, and other Christians saying, no, not so much. And so it divided into fundamentalists and liberals. Okay, so take me forward from there. So you're, you're 15, you're now a fundamentalist Christian. You believe presumably a whole raft of doctrines, and now you're becoming, at some point, more of a formal student of the faith. What, what did your, your academic background begin to look like? So in high school, I was very active on the uh, high school debate team, uh, and I was uh, very involved in debate. And when I was graduating from high school, I had to decide whether I'd go on to Kansas University to be on the debate team or to go off to a Christian school and further my understanding of the Bible, and I ended up uh, following the latter path. Um, This 20-something fellow who was the head of this youth group had gone to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago um, and told me that if I was going to be a serious Christian, I too would go to Moody Bible Institute. Mm. And so I did. (laughs) I went to Moody Bible Institute, which was a a three-year degree program uh, that focused on Bible and theology. And there, I, my, my classes, my initial post-high school education was taking uh, classes. One semester, I'd have a class on the Gospel of John, and then another on the Book of Hebrews, and uh, another on uh, how to evangelize the pagans. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. it, was all, it was all Christian kind of stuff. And I, so I did that That always comes in years. handy. So did you start with the study of the, the relevant ancient languages at that point? No. Uh, when I was at Moody, I wanted to take all the Bible and theology classes I could. And I, even though I knew the importance of learning Greek for the New Testament, I I didn't want to waste time doing that because I just wanted to master the uh, the Bible as well as I could. And so I took all my classes in on the English text. Uh, uh, but, you know, my, my first semester at Moody, I took a class on the Gospel of John. So the entire semester on this one book of the New Testament. And during this class, there was, the guy who was teaching this class was seemed really smart to me. He was really organized, and, and I thought, you know, this guy's getting paid to do that. I, I want to do that. And so mm. already as a 17-year-old, I decided I wanted to become a New Testament scholar. So then you just you went to graduate school, still full of faith? When, when did your study begin to erode your conviction in the, in the truth of the doctrine? Right. So, the, so Moody was a three-year institution. And to, to get a, the bachelor's degree, you had to transfer somewhere else to get credits. And so I transferred to, after Moody, I went to Wheaton College, which was uh, Billy Graham's alma mater. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, that was a step towards liberalism, <laughs> because <laughs> they were not quite as fundamentalist as I was used to. That and at, at Wheaton, I took a, uh, for my foreign language requirement, I took Greek, ancient Greek. And it turned out I was uh, pretty good at it. And so then I decided I wanted to do my graduate work uh, dealing with the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, uh, studying the New Testament in the original Greek language. And the world expert on the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament was a man named Bruce Metzger, 
who taught at Princeton Theological Seminary. And so when I graduated from Wheaton with a degree in English, uh, I went off to uh, Princeton Theological Seminary to uh, further my education in Greek manuscripts. And then did that take you through your PhD? or? So I did a master's degree there, a three-year master's degree, and then I then I uh, applied and got into the PhD program, and uh, so it was another four years getting my my PhD. And uh, in the process, my my first year in my master's program, I took Hebrew so I could read um, the Old Testament in the original Hebrew, and uh, I learned German so I could read what scholars in Germany had said, and French so I could read what scholars in France had said, and and so I start I, I started getting involved in serious scholarship, as opposed to uh, simply memorizing the Bible or uh, you know learning about the Bible. I learned I was I was actually studying it in the original language and. And that was largely what led me away from fundamentalist Christianity. Well, so before we talk about the epiphanies you had that led you to doubt or the various stages of doubt, take me back to before that moment. And at that time, if we had met you at your most educated with respect to the Bible, but also full of faith, at that point, what would the the young Bart Ehrman have said is the most convincing argument in favor of Christianity? Um, I would have said that historians can prove that Jesus was raised from the dead, and uh, mm. that there's no explanation for uh, the evidence other than an actual resurrection, which means that uh, God must have raised Jesus and that that proved the, uh, proved the uh, historical reliability of the Christian claims. And what would you have said the evidence was, given that there's no doubt that most historians would balk at any challenge to prove the, the resurrection? So what, how would a historian go about doing that? So again, so this is back in my very conservative day, Christian days. I, I would have said that there are two uh, basic um, historical facts that virtually everybody agrees on, and people need to explain these two facts. The two facts are that uh, three days after Jesus was put in a tomb, the tomb was empty, and Mm -hmm. that some of his followers said they saw him alive again afterward, and that any explanation for those two facts has to explain both of them satisfactorily. And uh, and then what I would do is I would go by, go through various explanations for why there would be an empty tomb and why people would say they saw him alive afterward, uh, including groups of people. And I would say that um, that none of the naturalist explanations simply work for, for, those, uh, for those phenomena. Well, so as a skeptic here, uh, some explanations just come rushing in for me, as you might imagine. And so I'm just wondering why, and I'm not, I guess I'm not speaking about you personally here, but just as a matter of culture, the, the, the culture of people like you who are very well versed in the Bible, who believe the central doctrines of Christianity and anchor their belief to this claim. I mean, so here's the the first thing that, as a you know, an atheist debater on this topic, would come to mind to say. I mean, there's, there's obviously there's Hume's famous line that about there being you know no testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless that testimony is of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which its I think his word is endeavors to establish. So, 
again, translating that into modern English, the testimony about the miracle, it would have to be even an even greater miracle for that testimony to be false. And that bar is almost never cleared. I mean, like you can think of an uncountable number of modern situations where you have Western devotees of Indian gurus who believe that their teacher has performed a miracle. And the culture of confirmation bias and self-deception is just palpable when you, when you talk to these people. I mean, you're surrounded by people who, even in a modern context where they have all of the resources of scientific skepticism at their disposal, and when they haven't been indoctrinated into these beliefs since birth, you can still find Ivy League-educated people who are convinced of the veracity of various miracles really on the basis of hearsay. I mean, they're, they're not disposed to put these claims to any kind of empirical or logical test, and certainly they're not meeting Hume's criterion here that the, the testimony of these people, the people who are delivering the hearsay, is somehow so rock-solid that it would be an even greater miracle that you'd have to admit if you were to suspect that it's false. How is it that you account for what seems, at least from the outside, to be such a, a disinclination to put these claims to some obvious skeptical tests? Right. I'm, I mean, I completely agree with your view on this now. And I have debates with people today, uh, uh, public debates with people who want to argue that resurrection really happened. And it's incredible to me that they continue to think that you can prove this. But, you know, as you as you know, from your debates, people who are inside a particular tradition evaluate probability differently from people who are outside that tradition. And so the Christians, uh, people who, like me, were fundamentalists, what we would argue at the time was uh, a couple of things. One is that the the disciples absolutely thought they saw Jesus raised from the dead. They talked with him. They ate with him. They uh, spent time with him after his crucifixion. Uh, and the reason we know that they really did is because they all uh, were willing to be martyred for this belief that he'd been raised. And, and that, that, for us, was evidence that it happened. But not only that, but we're not just talking about individual things where you could say that somebody had a dream or a hallucination. Uh, we have uh, authors claiming that 500 people saw him at the same time. So uh, it couldn't be a hallucination because there, I mean, you can't have a group hallucination of 500 people. So this was, these, these are the kind of arguments we have. And these arguments made real sense to people who already believed in the resurrection because it just seemed plausible. Uh, mm. And to outsiders, of course, it just seems kind of crazy. But to insiders, uh, you know, you're, for, all, for everything with the past, you're trying to evaluate what probably happened, and there's no reason it probably didn't happen. And so, well, okay, it seems like it probably did happen. <laughs> yeah, well, so, so the other issue here, which comes ready to hand, is the time at which these various Gospels were composed. Perhaps you can remind me of the history here. None of these documents that are ostensibly reporting these eyewitness accounts of miracles were actually contemporaneous with the miracles or with the, with the ministry of Jesus. What is the earliest account we have of anything that Jesus is reported to have said or, or 
done. Right. So, yeah, so the basic dating is that Jesus died around the year 30 of the Common Era. Um, our earliest gospel is probably the Gospel of Mark, which was written around the year 70 of the Common Era, so it's 40 mm. years later. This is a kind of contemporary view of, of critical scholars. Uh, Matthew and Luke would have been later than that, maybe 80 to 85 of the Common Era, John maybe 90 or 95. So we're talking 65 years later for the Gospel of John. And so when, when I was a when I was a fundamentalist Christian, though, I didn't accept those dates. I thought that uh, Matthew and John were written by people who were actually disciples of Jesus, and Mark and Luke were written by people who knew uh, eyewitnesses. And moreover, um, I would point out at the time that even prior to the Gospels, the Apostle Paul was writing, and Paul Paul uh, wasn't one of Jesus' disciples, but Paul claims that he himself saw Jesus alive uh, soon after his death, well, within a couple years of his death. And Paul mm. tells us that uh, he knew 500 people who had seen Jesus at one time. And so, uh, you know, uh, today, critical scholars would say, look, we don't have these accounts until decades later. Uh, which I think is right. Uh, but when I was a fundamentalist, I, I would try to kind of argue back closer to the time of Jesus that we actually have people who said they knew eyewitnesses. And is that standard among fundamentalists, however well-educated in the, in the text, that they, they would not agree with the the modern academic dating. That's right. Because dating. so the deal with the modern academic dating is the Gospel of Mark uh, seems to uh, seems to know that the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Romans. Uh, that happened in the year 70, mm -hmm. and uh, so probably it's written sometime after the fact. But fundamentalist Christians would say, uh, no, he's, it's predicting it's going to happen. And so, you know, it could have happened, it happened well before—this gospel is well before that. And if you don't agree with that, it's because you have an anti-supernaturalist bias. <laughs> hmm. Oh, interesting. So, so they get a kind of a, an added benefit there. They not only get the contemporaneous record, they get the truth of prophecy. That's right. Interesting. It's good to focus on what, why all of this is important. There's a lot riding on this because the resurrection of Jesus is really the core miracle that, I guess I should just ask you, what do you think or what, what is the, is, is there a standard conception of the, the minimal set of beliefs that makes a person a Christian? I understand that the, the fundamentalists would draw the line differently than others, but it's I'm just reminded of the line from, I think it's 1 Corinthians, from Paul, where he says, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, which is to say completely ineffectual, you know, in error. So there is no Christianity. On Paul's account, there is no Christianity unless the miracle of the resurrection is true. At least that's how I read that line. Is that the center of the, the, center of the doctrine for most Christians, or, or certainly anyone who wouldn't be, whose Christianity wouldn't have evaporated to a point where it really has no supernatural characteristic. Yeah. So, so the reality on the ground is that there there is a bottom line for what one has to believe in order to be a Christian, and every Christian draws that bottom line in different places, and every Christian thinks that they're the only ones who have the right line. <laughs> so, so yes, there are there are lots of Christians who would say if you don't believe in a literal resurrection of Jesus, then you really aren't a Christian, whatever else you might say, and they would they would quote that line from Paul from First Corinthians fifteen that you were quoting just now. Um, 
I know lots and lots of Christians who don't believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus. Um, they think that his body stayed in the grave, rotted in the grave, and that the resurrection is more of a spiritual event or it's a metaphorical event, but they still consider themselves Christian. I mean, there, there are lots of very highly educated Christians who are sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the more evangelical Christians would say, well, you're not really a Christian. And the other Christians would say, well, actually, you know, you're not, you're not the one who's been given the right to define what a Christian is. Uh, and so there are these very large debates within, within Christianity itself about you know, where, where the bottom line is. Yeah, and I must say, I have met very sophisticated people, you know, very well-educated people, very successful people who are believing Christians. And when pressed on this point, I have been astonished to discover that they actually believe the literal uh-huh. story yeah. of, of resurrection. Yeah. I mean, these are and these are not people who yeah. I would have thought were Bible thumpers or, or fundamentalists yeah. of any sort. This is like the last trench that has to be defended in the war against yeah. doubt. No, there certainly are a lot of people like that who are otherwise. I mean, who believe in evolution or believe in. I mean, they believe. You know, they they believe in science. I mean, they, you know, they think the universe is thirteen point eight billion years old and whatever. But they would draw the line at a, at a literal resurrection. And there are a lot of other people, not, not as many, but there are uh, sophisticated uh, Christian thinkers who say, no, that uh, it's not a literal resurrection, and that, in fact, the earliest Christians didn't believe in a literal resurrection, that that was a later imposition on the faith. Hmm. Let's talk about a few other doctrinal claims that, that may or may not be central. So what is the place of heaven and hell? would you say, in Christianity generally and, and your version when you were a believer in particular? Yeah, so this is something I'm very interested in because it's what my next book is on. <laughs> mm. It's where the question of heaven and hell, where, where the issue of heaven and hell came from. Because, uh, you know, the, the standard Christian belief um, uh, is that you, when a person dies, their soul goes to heaven or hell, goes for eternal reward or eternal punishment. And uh, that teaching's not in the Old Testament, and it's not what the historical Jesus thought. And so, where'd it come from? <laughs> and so, that's that, that's what my next book is. Uh, when I was a when I was a fundamentalist Christian, I was a fervent believer in uh, a literal heaven and a literal hell, and I believed that hell was uh, a place of eternal torment, uh, that it would never end, uh, with no possibility of escape. And it was the destination of the vast majority of the human race. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, fancy that the kind of arrogance you know involved mm-hmm. with that kind of claim. You know that I'm I'm going to be rewarded forever, but my next door neighbor, well, poor sap, he's going to hell forever. That's uh, mm-hmm. the arrogance of it. I don't think it, uh, actually struck me at the time. And were, were you actually psychologically affected by it? I mean, presumably you you knew people who you recognized to be good people who you had nice connections with, but who you were sure were going to spend eternity in fire, was that belief deep enough so as to cause you any feeling of, of psychological pain or compassion? Or I mean, how, did you, how did you feel interacting with people who you knew were, were destined to be tortured for eternity? Yeah, no, it, it absolutely did have an effect. And uh, where it was practically manifest was in my desire to convert people. 
uh, because mm. I believed that uh, goodness had nothing to do with it. It didn't matter whether you were a good person or a rotten person. If you didn't believe in Christ for your salvation, you were destined for hell. And so this is what, uh, this is what drove my uh, attempt to try and convert people. Just as in early Christianity, it was this belief that drove the evangelism of the early church. Uh, so it's always been this kind of motivation for Christians that, you know, if you really love somebody and you know they're going to hell, you, you need to sort of crack the whip and make them convert. There certainly are scriptural justifications for that belief. Now we're up against the limits of my Bible scholarship, but I seem to remember many passages where it's suggested either directly in the words of Jesus himself, or at least by one of the the gospel writers, that that there is no path to the the Father but through the Son, right? That's right. That's that's the emphatic teaching of the Gospel of John, and that everybody who doesn't believe in uh, in Christ is is going to be condemned. Uh, but in the Gospels, um, it's not clear that this is eternal torment in a particular place. The idea of eternal torment is uh, comes more clearly in the book of Revelation at the mm-hmm. end of the New Testament, where uh, where those who are opposed to God are thrown into a lake of fire, uh, and they, they burn in this, this lake of fire forever. I seem to remember that Jesus is, is presiding over that lake of fire. Well, so, the, yeah, it's, it's, it's very—it's actually—part of the intrigue of the book of Revelation is, is how intricate the scenario is, uh, which is, I think, one of the reasons people have been so drawn to it over the years, because it isn't just kind of a straightforward statement. It's actually this this graphic narrative portrayal and and trying to piece it all together because you've got you know you've got Christ and you've got God and you've got the angels and you've got you've got the Antichrist and the prophet of the Antichrist and so you have this entire scenario going on. Uh, but mm. but yeah, Christ and his followers are given an eternal reward in the New Jerusalem, and all those opposed to Christ are sent to the lake of fire. So if one were going to read the Bible, both Old and New Testament, straight through and form on the assumption that everything there is true and inerrant and that it's sort of on the reader to resolve any apparent contradictions, what rational understanding and expectation of the afterlife would one form? And so this is now a picture of the end times and, and, and one's personal end, you know, after death and I guess after the resurrection. And this is now sort of uncontaminated by the rest of the literature that has grown up on this. So let's, let's leave Dante and Milton and everything else that has come since aside. What do heaven and hell look like and what does the end of the world look like? Yeah, so it really depends on what the assumptions of the reader are. If if you're a reader who knows nothing about Milton or Dante or anyone, uh, if is just coming to, but is is uh, intelligent, um, but tries to reconcile everything, what that person would argue probably is in uh, is in a view of progressive revelation, where the where the ideas that are most true develop over time, and some of the earlier authors don't recognize the truths. Uh, the full truth. They only have partial revelation. 
And in that understanding of things, the the idea in the Sheol of the Old Testament where uh, everybody goes to this kind of netherworld uh, and they stay in this netherworld forever, that that gets modified over time until you get into the Gospels where where the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished, uh, but it looks like they're punished by uh, annihilation. That develops yet further when you get to the book of Revelation when you find out that, in fact, people are not annihilated. They are... Uh, they're tortured forever. And so the idea then would be that it's all consistent, but only in the sense that there was a progressive revelation. And this reader of the Bible, this hypothetical reader of the Bible then, basically agrees with the final book that Mm. there's eternal torment or eternal reward. Islam has a similar concept of of abrogation, where, where later verses abrogate earlier verses. And as luck would have it, the the more violent verses tend to abrogate the the more peaceful ones to the benefit of all humanity. So that is viewed in the Christian tradition, that progressive revelation, not as any sort of data point against this notion of inerrancy. You can still be inerrant even while various gospel writers or, or their predecessors are laboring under incomplete knowledge of God's plan. Yeah, it's because of the view of inerrancy that this view developed, because right. you, you have to reconcile these things. And so what a critical scholar would look at and say, well, you know, th- this is just inconsistent. One author has one view and another has another view, and they can't be lined up to each. Then the way to get around that is by saying, yeah, it's progressive revelation. So then what would heaven look like to someone who has gone through this whole progression and come out with, with some kind of final expectation? What What is the what is the picture of the the afterlife if you go to the good place so the the uh yeah so this is the interesting point is that if you're just sticking with the bible uh you don't have the idea that your soul you die and your soul goes to heaven forever it's that at the end of time uh bodies are going to be raised from the dead um and that there'll be a final judgment on the earth and god will destroy the forces of evil and he will um send everybody who is opposed to him into eternal punishment, but he will raise from the dead uh, all of his righteous, and they'll live here on earth uh, forever mm. in a utopian kingdom. And so the earth will be returned to its state, the state that it was in during the days of Adam and Eve, and uh, it'll be a perfect paradise forever. So it is a terrestrial paradise that presumably now functions by a slightly tweaked laws of physics so that it can last forever here, but it's not somewhere else and it's not in some ethereal condition. That's right. And and in this view, the tweaking actually happened with Adam and Eve, that originally this world was created as a paradise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, because of their sin, it, it got corrupted. And so uh, God is going to reverse the sin that was brought into the world by Adam and Eve and bring it back to its original state, which is supposed to be a place of eternal, eternal bliss. I must say, I'm rarely in conversations with Christians about these sorts of things, but this is certainly not a scientific uh, <laughs> poll, but... I am certainly walking around with the feeling that most Christians are believing in a very different heaven. I mean, I, I think I think when someone dies close to them, who they think is you know still in the faith and and destined for heaven, they're not picturing that person moldering in the ground for thousands of years or whenever it, however long it takes for 
Jesus to come back and usher in the end of the world. They're picturing that person, that person's soul, more or less moving directly from the hospital bed or wherever they were when they died into some ethereal condition, which is the afterlife, and it is eternal, and it's, it's in the company of God or Jesus or some circumstance that's just a matter of pure satisfaction and, and well-being. Two questions. Am, am I wrong about that? Is, isn't that what many, if not most, Christians believe? And, and if so, what are the, the, the scriptural antecedents for that belief? Um, that uh, you're right. That that is the belief, and that's one of the reasons I'm writing this next book about where these Christian ideas of the afterlife came from, because um, most of the Bible doesn't teach them. Uh, you can get to that view from a few passages, uh, sort of random and isolated passages, which um, don't actually say quite that uh, about this ethereal afterlife for souls. But you do get a couple passages in the writings of Paul where he seems to think that, yes, there is going to be this resurrection of bodies at the end of time. But in the meantime, uh, when people die, they've got this immediate presence with Christ in heaven. Uh, And I think that that idea that you have this immediate presence with Christ at your death Hmm. gets transformed into this idea of an ethereal existence. The thing is that uh, most most Christians who have this idea of this kind of existence of your soul but not your body have conflicted views, because they also think that when they get to heaven, they'll uh, be able to see their grandmother and talk yeah. with her. Well, I mean, if if she doesn't have a body, <laughs> what what are you going to see exactly? And how are you going to recognize her? And you know, so they have to come up with kind of weird explanations for how, in fact, it's your soul, but the soul has the physical appearance of your body, or, you know, and even though you don't actually have eyes anymore, you can still see, and you can still hear, and, and so forth. And how old is your grandmother? Is she is she restored to her the prime age of 30, or is she still granny in that condition? Well, that's right. And if, you, if you've had an infant child who's died, uh, does, is the child still an infant? Or, you know, do they—what are they in heaven? And so you actually—you have Christians who seriously debate these issues uh, and, and actually write books trying to explain uh, what it's really going to be like. I recall St. Thomas Aquinas dealing with some of this stuff. You have Christians debating the, uh, all sorts of issues relating this all the way back into the second Christian century. I mean, you have Christians asking, you know, if the body's raised from the dead at the end of time, and so all of the parts of your body are brought together, what happens if you were eaten by a cannibal? Mm-hmm. So that part of your body became part of the cannibal's body. So when the parts are raised from the dead, who gets the parts? You or the cannibal? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you, know, you have people debating this kind of thing all, all the way back. It's tempting to picture the a very different history where the doctrine of Christianity was just fatally confounded by one cannibal. Yes, right, right. So then what is the picture of hell that one can rationally form on the basis of Scripture? So most of the Bible, of course, is the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, there isn't a hell, a place of torment. There's this place called Sheol, which is a shadowy existence where everybody goes, good or or wicked, believers or non-believers, and it's just you kind of you exist there and not much happens forever. Um, when you get to the teachings of Jesus, Jesus thought that there'd be a resurrection of the dead at the end of the end of time. And he appears to have thought that those who were opposed to God 
were not going to be tormented forever. They were going to be annihilated. Uh, unlike mm. the righteous, the righteous will be given an eternal reward, but God will punish the, uh, the wicked by destroying them. And mm. the Apostle Paul never says anything about hell as a place of eternal torment. It's not really till you get to the book of Revelation that you start getting this eternal torment idea of, you know, of having this lake of fire. Is it Revelation that also gives us the notion of the rapture? Is that, or is that prefigured somewhere else? Is that a, an Old Testament prophecy that then Revelation connects the dots on? Well, this is an interesting point that even most Christians don't know. Uh, the book of Revelation does describe what's going to happen at the end of time, but it does not have a doctrine of the rapture. Uh, there's no mm. rapture in the book of Revelation. The idea of a rapture actually comes from the Apostle Paul. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, oh, Paul right. is talking about what's going to happen at the end when there, there'll be a resurrection of the dead, and he says that Jesus is coming back from heaven, and those who have died in Christ are raised from the dead, uh, and those who are living at the time will be taken up with them into mm -hmm. the sky, and they'll meet Jesus there up in the air. So it actually comes from uh, Paul's, Paul's letters rather than from the book of Revelation. Mm. Right. So now, did you believe in the rapture when you were, at this point, at the peak of your faith? Uh, I not only believed in it, I knew it was going to happen before the late 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> wow. So, so then, had you lost your faith by the time the, the late 80s came around, or was that one <laughs> yeah, of the reasons why yeah, you lost it? Well, I'd certainly lost my faith in the rapture by that time. You know, my loss of faith was kind of a long-term long process, and uh, the, the rapture was one of the first things to go. So what, what was the first doubt that was truly insuperable? Did it move in, in discernible increments where you, you crossed some kind of bright line and couldn't get yourself back to feeling the faith you had felt the day before? Yeah, there were, there were a number of lines, but when the, the sort of first moment was when I realized that the Bible was not inerrant. Um, I had, uh, my, my first year at Princeton Theological Seminary, I was taking a course on the Gospel of Mark, which was based on an interpretation of the Greek text. And so I, I knew Greek by this time, and we, we, we had to translate the entire Gospel of Mark, and we had to write a—we did an interpretation of every, every verse, you know, it was very deep and detailed. And I had to write a, a term paper, and I wrote a paper on a passage in Mark where Jesus is talking about a story in the Old Testament that happens, and he, he says that this account happened when Abiathar was the high priest. This is in Mark chapter 2. When you read the Old Testament account, actually, uh, this, the account that he's summarizing didn't take place when Abiathar was the high priest. It happened when his father Ahimelech was the high priest. So I write this 30-page paper arguing that even though Jesus said that Abiathar was the high priest, he didn't really mean that Abiathar was the high priest. Uh, he knew that Ahimelech was the high priest. So I write this long paper, and the, the professor reads the paper. He likes the paper, gives me an A because I had this complicated grammatical argument. But at the end of it, he said, maybe Mark just made a mistake. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought, huh, that'd be easier than 30 pages of dancing around the problem and coming up with this fancy grammatical thing. You know, in fact, yeah, maybe Mark just made a mistake. And once I, once I recognized that there could be a mistake, it mm. opened up the floodgates. Uh, and I started finding mistakes without wanting to, and then I started wanting to, and then I started finding them all over the place. There are mistakes with respect to facts we know outside the, the text of the Bible, but 
they're also just, there are contradictions within the Bible that are, any way you squint your eyes, they are contradictions. I remember there was an old book, I think it's probably 150 years old, I remember I have somewhere in the house, which I, I referenced in my first book, The End of Faith. I think the title is Self-Contradictions in the Bible. And some of these are just, you know, it's just that the coin came up heads or the coin came up tails. You can't believe both. I think one was, you know, John the Baptist was in prison at the time of the crucifixion, or John the Baptist was, you know, somewhere else at the time of the crucifixion. How did you deal with those? Well, you know, the uh, the intellectual uh, task of fundamentalists uh, involves reconciling differences. Uh, and if you work hard enough at it, you can reconcile just about anything. And so, you know, this was, it was like solving a puzzle. Uh, you assume that there are no errors. And if that's your assumption, well, then there are no errors. And the task is to find out why this is not a contradiction. Uh, and so today, I mean, when I, when I talk with fundamentalist Christians and try and point out, you know, uh, the Gospel of John says Jesus died the day before the Passover, and the Gospel mm. of Mark says he died the day after the Passover, and they both can't be right. Well, they have a way of reconciling it. <laughs> so mm. that's what you do. So, so what is the hardest thing to reconcile? If you were going to point out one thing that you think stood the best chance of, of toppling the whole house of cards, what is that thing? Well, that the the example I just gave is the one that I use uh, if I want to convince. You know, if I've got one example, uh, I I walk them through what happens in uh, in John's gospel because John explicitly dates the day of Jesus' death as the day before that he explicitly says what time of day and which day it was on. And the Gospel mm -hmm. of Mark also explicitly says what time of day and which day it was on. And they just flat out contradict each other. And so when you take somebody actually through the text and show this to them, then th th that does it. What I, what I do with my students is I, uh, I do a number of things with them to, to get them to see how there are different views in the Bible. But one thing I do is I have them compare either the accounts of Jesus' birth in Matthew and Luke or the accounts of his resurrection in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I simply say, look, list everything that happens in this gospel, then list everything that happens in that gospel, and compare your two lists and see if there's anything that is impossible to reconcile. And in both cases, there are things you simply cannot reconcile because they, they just contradict each other. Actually, I think we should go back to the, the time at which these texts were, were written, you know, based on modern scholarship for a moment, because if you accept that there was a significant delay in the composition of, of even the earliest Gospels, so if, if Mark was 40 years after the, the death of Jesus, and that's the earliest text, just map that on to, you know, our present conversation. I mean, it's as though you and I we're now talking about, without the aid of any media, without the aid of any real written materials or, or anything, it's, it's as though you and I are in a world now where we could talk about some historical figure who had a great influence a generation and a half ago. You know, we're talking about JFK or Martin Luther King Jr. Or, or, or somebody who we never met. We may not have met anyone who met that person. This person has, there's a kind of a residue of their life's work in the world based on almost entirely verbal accounts, because again, we don't have the internet, we don't have 
widespread literacy and 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 contemporaneous records. We just have rumors of rumors. And now you and I are going to put pen to paper or papyrus and write an account of exactly what happened in the, the last years and weeks and days of this person's life. That's the picture, at least I form, of what this would look like. And, and the idea that that kind of effort, absent some you know, direct line to an omniscient being who's just simply telling you what happened, that seems like an, an all-too-human enterprise that, if nothing else, will introduce a fair amount of error and creative license. And if you'd like to continue listening to this podcast, you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org. You'll get access to all full-length episodes of the Making Sense podcast and to other subscriber-only content, including bonus episodes and AMAs and the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. The Making Sense podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support. And you can subscribe now at samharris.org.